Well, good morning. You know, we're in this series, Advent series, on um, the songs of the Christ. And uh, this week we look at a song that is in the Psalms, uh, a song chosen from that ancient uh, collection of liturgical music that was sung in the church of the Old Testament. And this song is never quoted in the New Testament. And so you're wondering, why are we singing a song in the, in the ancient of times that's not quoted or even referenced explicitly, at least, uh, in the New Testament? Well, I want you to think about that because as we turn to this psalm, uh, this might be the most Christocentric, Christ-centered song of the whole Old Testament. But it's done so deeply and so uh, thoroughly that there is no reference explicitly to it because, in fact, you could argue that almost every verse of the New Testament that describes Christ is a reflection of this psalm. Now, I know those are extravagant statements, but, but that's what we're going to see. For today, we want to look at this Psalm 119. Uh, it's a curious song uh, because it is the longest song in the book of Psalms. It's also uh, the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And it is, I think, the only song of the Christ, again, that we will talk about in the Advent series that is not um, explicitly quoted. Now, being such a long psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible, the song has been uh, of some historical interest. Particularly, there have been many lengthy uh, works done and written on this psalm. Uh, one of those is by Thomas Mainton, a Puritan uh, preacher and writer, who wrote three full volumes, thick, 300, 400 word each volumes on this single psalm. And we just read the last of the eight, uh, the last stanza of 22 today so that we wouldn't take too long to read it. But also Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he professed how uh, he prized this song so highly, quote, that he would not take the whole world in exchange for one leaf or one page. There's something that is rising in anticipation, isn't it, there, as we come to this psalm? There is quite a few other amazing stories, I think, just of one. Uh, that's a little bit humorous. There is the story about the Bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century, uh, George uh, uh, Wishart. Uh, that is not to be confused with another Scot by that name who was later uh, martyred, a century later. But the story is told how Wishart was condemned to death and would have been executed. But as was the custom of that day, he, uh, they, the, the, they were allowed, the martyrs were allowed to choose any one of the psalms to sing before his death. And wisely he chose, I suppose, I don't want to impugn his motives, but wisely he chose the very longest psalm in the whole book of the Bible. And sure enough, um, he was awaiting a pardon from, uh, from a, 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 the king, and, and the fact is that it came about halfway through uh, the singing of this psalm. So it's, it's salvific, and I say that story in a kind of humorous way. Uh, it's supposed to be factual. I'm sure it's been embellished, but, but um, this song truly is a song about salvation. Uh, it is such an amazing song, and in keeping then with the American Christmas tradition, uh, 
as we get into this song, I want you to reflect on it as a love song. You could almost argue in the spirit of the Hallmark Christmas love story. We all know how those stories go. It's usually climaxes on Christmas Eve night. It's usually girl homes, finds country boy at home, and she rediscovers her first love in high school that she had left, and off they go into a romance. Well, it's not quite that cheesy, okay? But it is an amazing love song. What I mean by that is if you were to read the whole of it, this expression of love is all throughout. All throughout. Just to give you a few slices of the expression of love that's in this song. For instance, in verse 167, my soul loves you exceedingly. That's dripping with love. So, I mean, in verse 47, for I find my delight in you, which I love. 48, I will lift up my hands towards you, which I love, and I will meditate on you. I mean, there's a lot of doting going on here. Um, Let your steadfast love comfort me. Oh, how I love you. Let your steadfast love, I've read that. Um, I hate the double-minded, but oh, how I love you. I love your testimonies. Therefore, I love above gold and above the fine gold, I love you. Consider how I love you. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Uh, Now, does that sound like a love song to you? But some of you are familiar with Psalm 119. And you're thinking to myself, I never saw that. In fact, most people see the psalm as all about Scripture. All about the word, the testimonies, the precepts, the law. It's said in many different ways. But it's all about God's word. Well, okay, I got to confess. I kind of embellished those love uh, stanzas. I didn't change anything but the word you. For every time I said I love, quote, you, there would be one of seven different words used to describe God's revealed words. God's revealed words. And yet I think that I got to the intent of what's going on here. You see, what is loved is deeply personal. It's deeply personal. Even if it is said according to the person's words or testimonies or promises or laws or whatever it is, this psalm wants to celebrate the love of God. And yet the God that is not a mere force or power, therein is partly why I wanted to choose this psalm. Increasingly, we are encountering in a kind of postmodern neo-spirituality context, a very bland concept of God and spirituality where even Jesus is depersonalized into a kind of spirit force or presence. I think personally, and I've said it many times, that our greatest threat uh, to Christian truth and orthodoxy is what I could describe as a kind of Christian Buddhism, a kind of in, uh, affirmation of Christ, but within a much more Buddhist concept of spirituality. It's even happening, 
with my friends down south. I was there, of course, for a week during vacation, and it was just over and over I picked this up, that there is a God, but a God without words. Which is to say, a God that isn't a person. Because I want you to think about it. I mean, we know this intuitively. A God that is deeply personal is therefore a God that speaks words. It assumes what we all know intuitively, that there is perhaps nothing more personal, such as to even define the meaning of personhood, than communication. Personal communication. And as such, in a manner that we can hear and discern in a manner of words, or in a manner of speaking, to use the cliche. To speak to me is a deeply personal thing. We live in a context where there's been a kind of deep humiliation of the word. Jacques Ellul wrote about it in the 1918, uh, 19, I mean in uh, 2018, and or no, where was it? 1981, that's where it was called the humiliation of the word, and there he lamented the way the word was being replaced by images, by visual reality that was being substituted for verbal truth. Today, it's, it's kind of in an opposite direction, and, and the fast-fooding movement of the Enlightenment now into what we've called a kind of post-Enlightenment, post-modern context, we see that the word the objectivity of the word, even the personness of the word has been humiliated by the subjectivization of the word. Today we speak of truth as not the truth, but your truth, my truth. We live in a context where words become truth, even if they're false. This psalm speaks deeply into this Christmas season as we begin to think with our neighbors and friends of our city about this event that has gone through many cycles of Santa Clauses and likewise many cycles of Christian spirituality. We desperately need to hear a song that is a love song, but a love song that is deeply personal and in a manner in which this song therefore celebrates a person's words. It's to say that it would be an impossibility to love a person and to not love his or her words. Not love wanting to hear them, wanting to bask in them, wanting to understand them. And maybe for you who've been Christians for many years and you're thinking of Psalms 119, as rightly you should, a celebration of Scripture, if you will, the revealed and spoken Word of God, Maybe we need to hear it again. It is a love song. It is a song of the Christ. With that, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We know that you've told us in Scripture that in many and various ways of the ancient times that you spoke to us through our fathers and mothers by the prophets. But Lord, how in these times, in these days, you Continue to speak to us by your Son, Jesus Christ. For we know that he is the radiance of your personhood, your glory.
Lord, help us to hear the song of Christ and our song today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, again, uh, a little about the, the, the psalm, just to get you into it a little bit. The psalm is arranged in an acrostic pattern. Now, what I mean by that, that there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 stanzas uh, of this song. Each stanza begins with one, and it goes right down the list in alphabetical order, one of the alphabets of the Hebrew uh, language. Every verse of that stanza begins with that Hebrew letter. And so we have 22 sections, eight verses each, carefully organized and choreographed, all about this love, a love that wants to celebrate the personhood of God as revealed through his words. Now, there are many words used in the psalm. It's kind of like a kaleidoscope. Some of you don't know, maybe remember what a kaleidoscope is. It's one of these things you can turn and different uh, angles get at the, at the same thing. And it's all these beautiful colors. And you can just keep turning it and keep turning it and keep turning it, which is to say you keep looking at the same thing. But every time you look at it with a different lens or a different optic, if you will, uh, you see something else in it. It's, it's kind of lovely like that. The way that after you've been married for 30-something years, you still realize that love is a kaleidoscope. <laughs> you look upon your spouse, let's say, or your child, and gosh, I love this person. And wow. I mean, just depending on the day, depending on the moment, he, she looks so different. Sometimes a little more dangerously different, but different. And so it's the same way. You have so much of an attempt here, using the 22 letters of the alphabet, using here eight different words to refer to one thing, God's spoken and written revelations, his words to us. Looking at it through the word of the Torah, the law, these words become a kind of marriage contract, a covenant. Spoken through the word to bar, this, this is the word, the, it is the spoken word that is spoken to us in the most deeply personal way. The word mespantin is the word, the judgment's word. That is words of morality. Those things that regulate and order our lives. You have testimonies word. They're the words of witness. It speaks to the authority of the words that were witnessed by the heavenly host in the various manifestations as vouched for, as vindicated as true. You see the word in the Hebrew for commandments, the words of authority. Statutes, the words of law. And on it goes. Precepts, the words of instruction. Word, another use or translation, Hebrew word for the word word here being denoting how God has spoken or commanded or promised. It's the promise word. But you see what's happening here. Eight different words, all about words, all about God's communication in words to humanity. And throughout, they are considered in the most elaborate and extravagant ways. These words 
are precious. How I love them. And all the love language that I spoke to you were about earlier. I would be tempted here to, to review all 22 stanzas. I'll just give you a selection to kind of give you the feel. Again, it's kind of like this kaleidoscope where in each stanza you just get a little different. At first you might think, God, it's so repetitive. It's true. Every sentence, I think maybe with the exception of, of, of one or two that would look like a clause in your English, every sentence contains a word for words, one of these eight words, every one. And so you read it briefly and you go, oh, this is the longest book in the Bible and it says the same thing over and 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 over again. What's the point? Well, again, sometimes, for instance, in the first stanza of the Aleph, it's the blessedness of those who walk in God's word. It's defining what it means to be blessed, to have them. In the second bit, it's the purity of life that comes by his words. Oh, how I long. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Gamil, it's the delight in God's word. As it is in contrast to the hateful words of the world. Oh, how your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselor statement stated over against in contrast to the words that stung and to, that stung the writer. You have Delet, which is the power of God's word. How his soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. This is the, the power of God's word to give new life, to revive a person, to bring them out of the depression or the, or the soil of death. An estrangement. It's a source of guidance, he, or hey in the Hebrew. This little fifth uh, letter is, of course, the Hebrew alphabet, and it is used as the beginning of verbs that make uh, a kind of causative uh, statement. So, for instance, cause me to learn, and cause me to understand, and cause me to walk, and so forth. It goes on by your word. In other words, a word that has an impact that makes a difference. The word brings liberation. Vav. Let your mercies come also to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. Zion. The power of God's word to comfort. Oh, this is my comfort in my affliction. For your word has given me life again. Het. The sufficiency of God's word. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreat your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. Are you starting to love it? I mean, are you wondering why you're not reading your Bible 100 hours a day? Teth, God's word brings benefit even when through discipline. You have dealt with me, your servant, O Lord, according to your word. That is to discipline and to correct him. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe you and your commandments. 
Semecha. This fifth letter, the Semech, is, denotes a, a, a kind of a pillar. The word is a pillar. You are my hiding place and my shield, for I hope in your word. On and on it goes. It's a love song. But it's a love song that treats God not as a power, not as an it, but as a God who talks. So lost today in this spirituality of Christian Buddhism that's become quite evangelical, to be honest. And so I want us just to kind of, I just feel it. Do you feel it? I just want to kind of sit here for a minute. Such love for God so personal who speaks to us, who comes into our presence. If you think about what we've just read, not only can I say that it's deeply personal, but it's deeply present. It's the manner in which God in heaven breaks the glass ceiling of the Enlightenment-esque way of knowing rationality and breaks into our hearts with words. You could say without these words, there is no incarnation. There is no presence of God without these words. Not personal presence, at least. Again, we might make him to be a spirit force. How unlovely is that? But we make him a word, a spoken, written word that gets into our hearts. It's so lovely. Now, just get your mind around that for a minute, because I'm going to change pretty drastically here in a minute. Just kind of wrap your mind around what we've just heard, and the spirit that you're feeling it. But there's something that is quite perplexing about this psalm. I want to take you back to the very beginning, the way it begins. It begins much the way that Christ began the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, within the tradition of this psalm, Christ does in fact, I think, begin the Sermon of the Mount. And do you remember how it begins? It begins with what we call the Beatitudes. This song begins with Beatitudes. And like in the Old and the New Testament, it functions in much the same way. For you could read the Beatitudes, and at first you might receive comfort. Blessed are those who... But then very quickly you're feeling somehow you just got tricked. In fact, for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, much of it is an incredible explication of what it would mean to be blessed because of these attributes of those who get blessed, the pure in spirit, the, you know, on it goes. And begin, if you're honest with yourself, even in the words of Christ, well, it did. It made for some uncomfort. And he would turn, and especially targeting those who are under the law and the Pharisaic tradition, and he would expose to them the ways in which they are in no hope of that blessing. Because over and over and over again, he would say in so many words, you, you think, you have contrived all this in a manner that makes you think that you have kept the law. But let me tell you, you have not kept the law. You have not kept the words. You have not loved the words. So here we have it in the same kind of spirit. It makes me uneasy, this love song. Blessed are those 
whose way is blameless. Oh, I love the blessing language, don't you? Oh, but I can't stand that last clause. Ouch. Or who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. I will learn your righteousness. Okay, what are you going to do with that? Blessed are those who are blameless, dot, dot, dot. It creates a tension. And in fact, you'll find this tension throughout because on the one side, oh, I just love, I just delight, I just crave your words. And on the other hand, the more I know your words, the more I'm feeling very uneasy, even shamed. How to reconcile this? How do I reconcile the blessedness of God's word and the curse? of God's word. What are we going to do? I hope you're beginning to see the way this psalm is being used. It's interesting how many times in the song, to give you a hint, how many times the words of God, in all those manifold kaleidoscope ways of saying it, how many times they give life. They are credited with life-giving. And the language there is very, well, let me say creational, like, like the kind of life that's, that's given by God alone that only God can do by creation itself. There is a power to these words that makes life exist and flourish. Likewise, how many passages are spoken of, secondly, where there is a direct link and a kind of personification of the words to salvation effect. Let me say that again. There's a, there's a kind of almost personification of words, which we've already made a case for in the way in which it's personal. And yet that personification then brings you to salvation. Powerful stuff here. Let me give you again a couple of glimpses. Again, not, not all of them. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life by the power of your word. Whoa. I mean, almost a direct link to Genesis. Out of the dust came life. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your precepts. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. What does he mean, in my righteousness? We, we read these in devotional moments, I suspect, and just close right over that. We personified it, we subjectivize it. But what would it mean to be given life by me made righteous? Slow down. This is my comfort in my affliction that you promise 
Your promise, again, a reference to the word, gives me life. On it goes. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your words. There is this power identified with the words of God spoken, written to us. And secondly, there is this salvation. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promises. Again, one of those words or words. Your salvation according to your promises. My soul longs for your salvation, verse 81, for I hope in your word. What is he hoping for? This salvation? Yeah. This word? Yeah. They're synonymous in this parallelism in the Hebrew language. Let my, joy, my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. On and on and on, the language of deliverance, of salvation, of liberation is identified with this word. These words of God all in the context of a love song. It starts out with blessed. You're anticipating a blessing. And yet, it begins with a blessing that seems to assume, well, perfection, blamelessness, according to the words of God. It ends, tau, the last letter of the Hebrew stanza, it ends with a cry this song. A cry. Here it goes. You heard it. Let, me cr let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your words. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your words. This let me cry come before you. Give me understanding. It's the cry, of course, of the psalmist in an expression of prayer, a plea for understanding, a plea for salvation. You hear this kind of cry all through the New Testament. Paul pleading for this being not conformed to this world, but being transformed by the world, by the understanding of God's word, somehow being transformed by it. Notice how, again, it spoke of the long for salvation. Your law is my delight. And these two expressions together, this God's salvation according to his word, Salvation, you see, is the object of the cry. Save me is the end verse. It leaves you wanting. It leaves you expecting. You begin with a promise of blessedness, but it's a blessedness that haunts us. As we walk through the kaleidoscope of God's word, we begin to see how lovely it is, how beautiful it is, how it gives purity, it gives life, it revives us, it's this, it's comforting, it's all this stuff, but all through it, somehow we find ourselves crying out, oh God, give me this word. Help me to love it, even as I love it. And it ends with a cry for salvation and deliverance. Let my soul live, he says in the last song, uh, stanza. Let me live, Lord. Do you hear the existential cry? Let me live. For then I shall praise you, and your judgments will help me. 
When's the last time you thought of the judgments of God as helping you? I'm, I'm, I'm still perplexed. What's going on here? Well, I think some of you probably know where this is going. You hear this incredible confession in this last section. It's literally going through a rediscovery of God's glory like we did today, a rediscover of my sinfulness and my need for salvation like we did today, and here it is, a confession, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. How many times have we heard that? All we like sheep have gone astray, says the prophet Isaiah. Each have gone to our own way. On it goes. This cry of confession, we are lost. We have rejected your word and your words that give life. We have not followed them. We have not loved them. They have not been our delight. It's an honest assessment that made me uncomfortable to the beginning of this psalm. It leaves me wanting, this psalm. It leaves me adoring, but it leaves me wanting. Does it you? How would you like it if I left you right now? We don't have any minutes left. I could do it and get away with it, actually. Yeah, I could do it. End. Done. Let's go home. Merry Christmas. Of course, we know we can't leave it there. In the beginning, says John, since the beginning, it's been this way. In the beginning, the word, period. It's just the word. In the beginning, the word. God personhood communicating to creation. That's how it all began. Word. It's the greatest mystery of all. How out of nothing God created everything by a word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. Notice that intimacy. God, Word, inseparable. In the beginning, the Word was with God. And the Word, yeah, was God. Oh, that's what Psalms 119 is doing. This deeply personalized understanding of words come from God, come from heaven. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is to say, the word is absolutely necessary. There is no person God without word. And then, of course, it becomes full-blown. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I could have learned that in Psalms 119. And in him was life, and the life was the light of, the man, of, of, of all people. I learned that in Psalms 119. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I learned that in Psalms 119. And of course, any who would receive him, this word, anyone who would receive it, to them it would be given to become children of God. That is to be the blessed ones, the fulfillment of the Beatitudes. And, of course, it all comes home when this word, from the beginning, becomes flesh and is Jesus Christ. This is a song about Jesus from the beginning to the end. Every word. 
You could go and take the language that is descriptive of what the word accomplishes and you could apply it to every aspect of Jesus' life. People have done that. It's just amazing how you could go through it. It just seems very personal, but it also seems to be very much the person of Christ. Let me try to just summarize where we are in, in closing. It's true, the word of God exposes our sins, our fragility, our lostness, as it were. It's true that it guides us to purity in a world that is just starving for moral purity. We have the words of God. It's true that it is the very source of our worship of God. That without God's words, we would not know what and how to worship. I could go on and talk about all that. It's a truth that for those who are wise, it becomes the delight of their life, these words, for those who are wisdom. But most especially, what we've learned is that God's words are God's personhood. Spoken, written, and ultimately embodied in the person of Christ. God's word points us to Christ. God's word is Christ incarnate. Even if in a pre-incarnate manner of the Old New Testament, yet Christ being the fulfillment of it all. It's just impossible to love Jesus and not love God's word. But only when we discern that God's word is satisfied by Jesus. Lest we fear and hate God's word. You see, you can go through the scripture, and again, you can see over and over and over in how this is, that Christ is Psalms 119. We think of him in the temple at the age of 12. Would this not describe him? Verse 99, I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Psalms 119. We think of his perfect obedience. Psalms 1930, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. When I read that in my little subjectivistic manner, in my unredemptive historical manner, I got cursed by those words, didn't you? That statement of confession, I have chosen the way of faithfulness, I've put your rules before me. Ouch, not quite. But if I hear them as Christ's words, Oh, how I delight to hear it. He says these things. On it goes, the perfect obedience. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, says Psalms 119. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. About his obedience, his prayer life. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Think of Christ. Praying to the Father, putting himself in his mercy the days of his great crisis in Gethsemane. His love for God's law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I, I hear Jesus saying that. Don't you? Over and over. Weeping over Jerusalem, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. I see Jesus weeping over you and me and over Jerusalem. 
moments before he was to be slayed by us. Cleansing of the temple, leaving the, last, uh, leaving the Last Supper, heading to Gethsemane, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. You could take it through his whole life, anticipation of his resurrection. It's all there, fulfilled in Christ. And so the take-home. We celebrate at Christmas God's Word incarnate. We celebrate at Christmas the reality of the power of salvation, but it is not through an innocuous, bland, uh, opaque spirituality. It's by being open and receptive to God speaking into our lives with real and objective words written in Scripture, words that we no longer fear because those words are kept and fulfilled for us by Christ so that in his going to the cross and being raised from the dead, he acts now as our substitute so that we might be blessed according to God's word. It's an invitation for you to really take seriously the magic, the true magic. And I don't, you know, somebody's going to tell me it's not magic, it's miracle. I know, but magic seems to sound better right now. It's magic that God's words were even given to us from heaven. And it's greater magic that, he was born, that they were born into our flesh. That's what Christmas is all about. Please think and ponder these things. Rediscover it, the wonder and the romance of the love of God in Christ through his words. Amen.